Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast in the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War history group. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 50 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website, westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 12th of September 2022 and this is episode 269. On this week's podcast, I talked to PhD researcher Pauline Onderwater about the Netherlands during the Great War. Pauline spoke to me from her home just outside Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Pauline, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the, in the Netherlands and the Great War? Um, yes, well, it was actually quite of a coincidence to be... Uh... Perfectly honest, uh, uh, during my studies, I started with uh, military history as a um, specific field of interest um, because wars have always fascinated me, especially where they affect society. So uh, it was more the new military history that interested me. Uh, and uh, this was like 15 years ago. So I, I was also one of the few women who took military history, uh, which I also found a uh, interesting um and uh when i was looking for my uh subject for my master thesis uh one of my professors suggested looking at the commander-in-chief of the dutch army during the the first world war uh, general snyders and then basically i got hooked uh, i thought uh, in, in the netherlands the second world war is the war to talk about uh so the first world war is not really uh part of the uh historical consciousness uh, here in the Netherlands. Uh, but I found the First World War much more interesting uh, as a war and as how, how the first total war, how it affected society. So uh, when I was looking for a subject for my uh, thesis, uh, I, for my doctoral thesis, um, I first wanted to look into Amsterdam during the First World War. So I do like a uh, urban history. Uh, but eventually I took it a little broader and now I'm looking into the uh, way the um, relationship between citizens and local governments changed uh, in the Netherlands during the First World War. So let us start at the beginning. Could you give us a broad outline of the political, economic, demographic makeup of the Netherlands in 1914? Because I think I'm sure many of our listeners won't know much about um, the Netherlands <laughs> in that period. Yes. Uh, well, uh, the Netherlands was and still is, of course, a, a fairly small country. Uh, we had about 6 million inhabitants back then, but we did still have a colonial empire in what is today Indonesia. Um, and um, we had also industrialized uh, a little later than, for instance, Britain and uh, a little later than Belgium. Uh, but in the second half of the 19th century, uh, uh, this, uh, the industrialization started to pick up and the economy modernized. Um, before that, we were mostly an agricultural country. Um, cities expanded, uh, the working uh, class expanded, um, and with that, mass society started to rise, as it did in other countries at that time. Um, <clears throat> there was still quite a distinction, I think, between the, agri the, the agricultural country and the, uh, the cities. Uh, at the workforce in the cities, uh, 
and the, the in the countryside there was still a lot of farming uh we also uh started trading a lot we were an important trading nation so uh, the netherlands was quite dependent on the international market which of course is important when the first world war uh, breaks out um uh, politically speaking um the enfranchisement had been expanded in the years before the first world war so it was about 68 percent uh, of male uh, citizens that were eligible to vote and it was based on a census system so you had to have a certain amount of uh, income but you could also be able to vote if you had certain diplomas uh, and women were still excluded of uh, voting and um yeah the 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 second half of the 19th century really saw some political changes in the Netherlands because um, before that politics had really been something of the yeah of the higher uh, classes in society. Um, there was little political consciousness. Uh, it, it was considered um, pol uh, politics was supposed to be uh, elite business. It was uh, you could only become a member of the um, second chamber in the Netherlands if you were of certain you had certain levels of income and competences and uh, you weren't affiliated with uh, parties yet in the 19th century and that started to change in the last quarter of the 19th century and then political consciousness grew in the Netherlands uh, political parties uh, rose and um, yeah a lot of subjects that were formerly not political now became a political rallying point. Um, there was one uh, uh, man who was really instrumental in this. This was uh, Kuipers. He was the leader of the first uh, Dutch party, a uh, Protestant party. And he, uh, he really was able to mobilize even the, the, the citizens who were not eligible to vote yet for certain subjects. Uh, for instance, uh, schools that were uh, religiously based, they could not have uh, any uh, subsidies of the government. And uh, he was able to uh, make a petition about that. And it was signed by far more people than were eligible to vote. So it was really the rise of political consciousness of mass society. Oh, it's also important to know that the Netherlands was at the time of the First World War, uh, what we call pillarized society. Uh, we've really uh, been divided into four groups, a Protestant uh, part, a Catholic part, a socialist part, and a liberal part. And um, that is important because it, for instance, uh, meant that there was not one big worker force because it was uh, all, uh, you had a Catholic worker force and a Protestant workers force. And uh, yeah, that meant that, uh, for instance, socialism did not... Uh, it could not get too big of a foothold in uh, the Netherlands. So that's also important to know. Now, war breaks out in 1914 and the Netherlands remains neutral. Now, why did they choose mm -hmm. that decision? Well, uh, the Netherlands had remained neutral in every war uh, since 1839, except for their own imperial wars, of course. Um and it was mostly a practical choice because uh, the Netherlands was a small country in Europe, uh, but it had also had an empire. And for the empire, it was more dependent on uh, Britain's goodwill. Uh, but for 
its position in Europe, uh, Germany was its most important trading partner. So for the economy in Europe, Germany was more important. So it was in some ways more practical to uh, try to have a neutral uh, stance in every war. And uh, so far it had also worked. Um, and it because it was because the Netherlands uh, was neutral for so long, it had also become somewhat of a it had become part of the identity of the Netherlands. Uh, the peace conferences were held in the Netherlands before the First World War, and uh, the Netherlands really considered itself a very important country for the equilibrium in in Europe. So it was something of a peacekeeper in Europe, uh, or so it considered itself. So it was partly practical and partly uh, some type of moral stance uh, to remain neutral. So obviously the Netherlands is in a rather tricky situation in navigating its relationship with Germany and the Central Powers, but also Britain, mm -hmm. France and the Entente during the war. So how did it manage this somewhat tricky position in, in its geographical yeah. location stuck between both, both power blocks? Yeah, well, this is quite tricky indeed. Um, it, it required a lot of diplomatic um, negotiations. Um, it was the government was well aware that that the neutrality depended for a large part on the willingness of the belligerents uh, to uphold it. Um, they did try to um, have a, a plausible defense system that would require some um, difficulty to overrun, but. All in all, um, if the belligerents were happy with the Netherlands as a neutral country, then it would stay neutral. They were aware of this. Um, so they tried to make absolutely sure that none of the countries could claim that they were biased or that they uh, profited one country more than the other. Um, but there were some very tricky situations. Uh, um, there was, for instance, uh, something called the sand and gravel um, Dilemma: The Germans uh, they uh, trade they uh, transported sand and gravel through the Netherlands on the River Rhine to Belgium, which they claimed was for uh, um, uh, working on roads and stuff like that. But in essence, it was for fortifying their positions in Belgium. So of course, Britain was not too pleased with this. Um, so there was like a continuous negotiation between uh, the Dutch government and Britain and Germany as to how far they could go. And uh, the problem was also that the Netherlands were uh, dependent on, uh, for instance, the U.S. for grain, uh, for its bread. Um, so when the U.S. came into the war in 1917, uh, it had uh, a lot of pressure, a lot of uh, um, weight pressure uh, the Netherlands to be less accommodating to the Germans. So this was quite difficult. What's also interesting in this respect is that uh, there was the creation of an organization called the Dutch uh, Overseas Trust Company. And this was a private company and it negotiated with other countries about trading issues. Um, and because it was a private company, um, it was possible to negotiate certain things without compromising the neutral stance of the government. Uh, so this was kind of like a, a detour to keep uh, the economy going, but it was a lot of uh, uh, it was a difficult balancing act for the for the Dutch government with a couple of very narrow escapes where yeah uh, 
they almost got into the war. <laughs> and how did the war affect the daily lives of Dutch, Dutch nationals and the wider society in the Netherlands? Well, first of all, it's very important to know that uh, the Netherlands was the only neutral country that stayed mobilized for the entire war. Uh, so this meant that soldiers were part of everyday lives in the Netherlands uh, for four years and they had to be housed and they had to be fed and they had to be closed and they had to be entertained because, well, they had very little to do. So, um, yeah, there had be, uh, all sorts of things had to be organized for them. Um, of course, they had to be replaced at home. Um, and, yes, this was quite a strenuous situation, of course, Um and in the beginning of the war, there was also, well, some fear, some uh, um, strain that the Netherlands might be become uh, involved in the war. Um, and later, this subsided a little. But every time there was a crisis, of course, uh, uh, all the people were very worried that we would become involved in the war. Uh, so that was one important respect in which the everyday lives of people were affected. Um, another important element. Uh, was the fact that there were a lot of refugees um, in the beginning of the war? Some like one million Belgian refugees came into our country, and this is one million on a population of six. So you can uh, six million. So you can imagine uh, what a big effect that had. Uh, they also had to be housed, had to be placed everywhere, had to be fed. And in at first, uh, of course, there was a very uh, public sentiment of wanting to help them, uh, but uh, this soon um, became less. They became a little irritated. The Belgians were uh, persuaded to go back home. Uh, so this was um, also quite difficult. Um, and then, of course, there were the shortages, uh, as in other countries. Um, there were several laws were uh, passed by the government to ensure that uh, the people could be fed. There was a a food act that allowed Maris to confiscate products or materials or uh, domestic items and sell them at a set price. Um, and there was another law, law that allowed the government to prohibit foods from being exported. But there were soon a lot of uh, exemptions on those laws. Um, there were a lot of products that were being exported and it meant that the 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 element that was left over for the Dutch people themselves was often very little. And um, yeah, the, the food supply represented a great challenge for the governments during the war. Um, they were highly dependent, uh, the Netherlands was highly dependent on grain exp imports uh, for the, from the United States. And uh, the British blockade made that more difficult. Uh, so there were rules about uh, not making white bread because it needed more uh, uh, wheat, um, for instance. Uh, and in the last years of the war, the scarcity became even more. Um, there is one quite famous incident that's called the potato riots. It's in 1917. The, the potatoes uh, were very hard to come by and they were being exported, but they were also, um, because there was difficulty trading, they would sometimes lie in the docks and just brought there. Uh, and at one point, uh, they started in Amsterdam, uh, the women started uh, ransacking ships that had potatoes on it to, to get hands on their potatoes. They marched to the mayor's house and demanded uh, the food. Um, and then the, soon there were strikes and riots all over the country uh, when this happened. So there was quite a lot of um, 
restlessness towards the end of the war, uh, strain uh, from uh, yeah, the scarcity, the lack of food, the lack of fuel, uh, schools that had uh, to house soldiers. So, uh, yes, it was uh, quite a lot of effects. <laughs> I've got two questions next, but I think they're probably best rolled into one, which was looking at okay. how did the uh, public in the Netherlands look at the view the war and did their view put political pressure on the, the Dutch government to either join the central powers um, in this conflict or the Entente? Well, um, there is not that much known about yet, I should say, because I do think there's some research being uh, undertaken into this and to the views of like the, the common people of the Netherlands um, because the uh, newspapers for instance were uh, there was not so much censorship but more self-censorship of the newspapers uh, uh, be neutral in their writings uh, um, they were not supposed to choose sides or um, comment on one of the warring parties because that might endanger neutrality um, but uh, there was a wider debate on uh, war, on neutrality in on, amongst the intellectuals of the Netherlands. But this was all very theoretical. So it was um, um, yeah, the, the the views on neutrality, for instance, changed. Of course, at the beginning it was um, like a moral stance, and later it became more difficult to. Uh, uh, defend uh, a neutral position, so that that was an ongoing debate, uh, and there was an ongoing debate about how war could be prevented in the future. But it was not so much uh, uh, that there were sentiments towards one or other of the countries. Um, so I think the Dutch people mostly viewed the war, um, especially towards the end of the war, and how it affected their. Uh, life. So indeed, what I just told you about the shortages and the, the uh, there were a lot of demonstrations about civil rights and about um, uh, social policies, what the government should take care of for the people. Uh, that's also what I'm looking into in my uh, thesis. Um, so there was also not any political pressure to join one of the two parties. Um, but what is interesting in this respect, uh, although this was not known at the time, is that the uh, commander-in-chief of the Dutch army was um, pressuring the government a little to take a stance. Um, as Schneiders was like really a military man all the way through, and he, um, well, he, he knew it was impossible for the Netherlands as a small country with a not very effective army to fight a multi-fronted war. Uh, so at several times during the war, he tried to get an answer from the government as to what side they might choose in case of uh, involvement in the war. And he preferred uh, to uh, become an ally of the, of, uh, the German Empire, uh, not so much because he was uh, fervently uh, pro-German, but because he thought that would make the most sense, uh, militarily speaking. Um and the government uh, did not want to make this choice. They had the viewpoint that they would choose if there was a situation. And uh, the idea was that if Britain would attack, then automatically they would uh, take sides with Germany and uh, the other way around. If Germany would attack, they would side with Britain. So they would not uh, choose upfront uh, what they would do. 
And uh, this became quite a big of a problem between the government and uh, General Snyders. Uh, at one point, uh, the Minister for War wanted Snyders to, um, to be let go because of this uh, viewpoint. But because the Queen really liked General Snyders, so she pressured the government uh, to keep him on. And eventually the Minister for War left. Um, and then in the final months of the war, uh, General Snyders was made to leave as well because uh, uh, they thought he was too um, old school, old school military man and there needed to be more democracy in the army. But this also came back to bite him <laughs> because it, uh, yeah, they called him uh, defeatist that he uh, already uh, was, that he was sure that they were not able to defend the country against both sides. Uh, so this was quite an interesting episode, although of course it was mostly, uh, it was not known to the public at the time. It became known la later in the war, in the end of the war when General Snyder had to leave. And of course, after the war, it, this became known. So uh, there was no public pressure, but uh, behind, uh, behind the, the, the curtains, there was some uh, debate. And one question I, I didn't write down, but, but is, is, is pertinent to this. Did any Dutch citizens actually serve in either the German army or the British or French armies as foreign fighters? Uh, I think so. I'm not entirely sure because I, I, I think I read an article about this once. Uh, I know that there were a lot of um, ambulances, Dutch ambulances that were sent to the front. Uh, and I think there were some... Um, uh, soldiers who volunteered for either the, I think, the, either the French or the uh, German army. Uh, but this was not very common. So it was mostly on um, uh, more the civil level where help was being offered. So the, the ambulances, the uh, refugees, um, things like that. Uh, so not so much the military. So there were some but not a lot. And my final question, Pauline, is where can people learn more about your work and when are you going to publish your doctorate? Yeah, uh, well, the last question I can say I don't know yet <laughs> because uh, um, I work as an external PhD, so it takes a little longer than uh, of course, when you're uh, working at a university uh, full-time on the subject. So I think it will be a little a couple more years before I am able to publish it. Although I do, of course, intend to publish articles uh, in between about subsections of the research. Um, and I have written several articles as well uh, in the last few years. So that should be uh, should be able to find them through a library websites, etc. I also wrote an article. Uh, on the domestic politics of the Netherlands uh, on the online encyclopedia in 1914-1918 online. Uh, so that's, you can just find that online. Um, yeah, so mostly via library sites and, uh, and uh, the encyclopedia. Pauline, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That's great. I can now turn the recorder off. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman, 
and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>